Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about unleashing courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today on the podcast, we are talking about money. That's right, you thought the NPR fall membership drive was over. And here you are turning on a podcast and there it is, they're talking about money. And if you're like me, you're tempted to turn it off. You're like, no, I come to my podcast for solace and a retreat from the world. And here they are. They're going to talk about money. I'm going to feel shame. They're going to ask me for it. And I don't want that. So I'm just going to stop. And if that's what you're doing right now, I just want to say, I feel you. Because I am there too. I have a lot of anxiety when it comes to money. I have a lot of shame when it comes to money. And yet, as we dive into this question of what is essential, money is a tool that helps us understand what in our society is seen as essential, what is seen as valuable, what is seen as desirable. And so because there's a lot of shame and anxiety, I thought we'd start the podcast with having a little fun. So I called up a few of my colleagues that didn't have any warning, and I asked them to tell me about the last purchase that they made. Hey, Hannah. Hello. I I have a question for you. Okay, go for it. What was the last thing that you purchased? Like, what was the last financial transaction that you went through? Groceries on Sunday morning. All right. And, and how do you feel about that? I'm mostly good. I feel like often at the grocery store, uh, sometimes things ring up more than I really wanted them to be. But on the whole, I did not stray from the list and stayed mostly in range. So I feel good about that. And, and like a, a few days later, you're, 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 you're confident in the decisions that were made? I think so. I didn't see it. Now I'm like, I do need to also go get mushrooms and Swiss chard, which is annoying. I really am like a, I try to be a firm once a week shopper. So I'm feeling some regret about a little bit of lack of planning. But I feel good about the things that I bought. I'm excited about the food that I'm making this week. I'm ex- like I'm excited about the ways that it's going to like nourish my family. So that's exciting. Though I did get some, like, some medical bills in the mail uh, yesterday that make me wonder if I should have spent quite as much as I did on stuff at the grocery store. But still, I say, like, on the whole, still positive a few days later. Yeah. It's funny you say you need some mushrooms because I went into the uh, grocery store the other day and I walked out with um, four different types of mushrooms and I had not planned on buying any. (laughs) What four different types of mushrooms did you get? I got shiitake, trumpet, Uh and then two types of mushrooms, one called like beach mushrooms and one that starts with another bee that looks like a beach mushroom, but it's but it's white, and I can't pronounce it. Oh. What are you, do you have plans? Um, I was going to make hot pot. Oh, that's a, oh, it's that time of year. Right? It really is. Yeah. Hey, Sean. Hey, Elaine. I, I have a question for you. Yeah. What was the last thing that you bought? Um, Linda Berry's book called Making Comics, so that I could get on Zoom with my friend Kristen from high school and draw comics together. How, how do you feel about that purchase? I feel like super, super good. I feel like it will feed my soul, actually. And you're, and you're still waiting for it to arrive? Yeah, I ordered it from a publisher because I didn't want to order it from Amazon. So I paid a lot 
in shipping from Canada and it's going to take kind of a long time to get here. Okay. But it's like something, you're, so you're looking forward to it. It's on its pilgrimage. It's going to arrive soon. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely in the, like, I'm looking forward to, like, the experience of this purchase. I'm enjoying the anticipation phase. That's, like, one of my favorite phases. Oh, yeah. Like, sometimes it's the best phase. <laughs> it's, I, that's, that's what the studies say. I'm also anticipating an activity with a friend, which is another great phase. I, I, I love that your purchase is supporting a relationship. That, I love that. Me too. I make lots of purchases that are not in that category. I just That just happened to be actually be the truth this morning. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, thanks, thanks for answering my call. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Bye. Often will we spend our money on shows us something about our lives. Who's in our family? You know, grocery bills are going to tell you who's in our family. The things we like, the books we buy are also probably a window into our souls. I'm grateful for both Hannah and Elaine for answering my calls there. And so I'm going to turn it over to Gretchen, who's going to invite us to think about our own relationship with money. Growing up Catholic, I always loved it when my mom told us that she'd signed us up to be ushers. I really love the part where we got to greet people and hand them a program and say good morning. I still love that part of Sunday morning. But even more, as a kid, I loved the part where we got to make sure that the offering basket was passed around. Children would smile as it came their way and throw their coins in. And my grandpa and all the other grown-ups would nonchalantly drop in an envelope that I understood had a check in it. Now, when I wasn't an usher and the basket would come our way, a few minutes before, often my grandma, who sat down the pew from us, would pass us each a little baggie of coins that we knew came from her coin purse. And then we got to take those, those coins and they became our our thing that we got to drop into the offering basket when it came our way. Not everyone feels the same way about this ritual of church life that now in the pandemic we do a little differently. Not everyone appreciates making money so visible, so central to our community life, especially in this hour where we mean to be setting aside to tend to the most important parts of our life, the essentials of our life. Despite money being a very big part of our lives, a huge determining factor for how our lives to go, money makes us squirm. We'd rather not talk about it. It is a kind of taboo subject, let alone censored as one of the few things that we regularly engage every single week, Sunday after Sunday. How awkward of us, how shameful. Whether we have a lot of money or none or somewhere in between, money is often a source of shame especially for people enculturated as white and middle class, as many in our congregation are. We inherited the idea of money as a source of shame or as uh, something that we cannot talk about from the English, from the 
um, English colonizers, whereas Lisa Crestman writes, the wealth of others was easily estimated based on the amount of the, of the land that one owned and all it required to build up and maintain it. A person's wealth in that time and place and the status and power and prestige it implied was self-evident, which meant that people who had money didn't need to talk about it. Right. So therefore, those who talked about money were the ones who didn't have it. The discussion of money became associated with being in a lower class and to be classy. Classy meant not talking about money. Surveys show that on a list of topics, people consistently rank money as the hardest thing to talk about. Harder to talk about than politics or religion or sex. One study showed that people are seven times more likely to talk about sex with somebody or then discuss their salaries. We don't talk about money, but that doesn't keep money from impacting us or our capacity to live lives connected to that which is most essential. We don't talk about money and the not talking about money is what keeps us from living lives connected to that which is most essential. Money, after all, is one of the most critical determining factors of our individual and collective lives, individually in, a, in the practical and very basics of essential sense in terms of how much we worry about money or struggle to have enough money impacts our emotional and physical well-being every day in nearly every moment. And collectively, money is the tool that perpetuates inequality generation after generation, and money is also the tool that could foster change, facilitating the creation of the beloved community. Not talking about money doesn't make money's harms less likely, but only perpetuates systemic inequality and individual injury. Not talking about money leads people to making, making leads people to make uninformed decisions about debt with lasting generational consequences. Not talking about money leads people to fail to negotiate to under, like a, a fair wage, maybe even to understand what a fair wage would mean. Not talking about money leads to people continuing to have unequal access between spouses to money. Not talking about money leads to our collective misunderstanding of how wealth and profound income inequality fuels pretty much every challenge that we face in our society today, from climate change to COVID, gun violence to healthcare, pretty much every challenge we face is impacted by wealth and profound inequality which is why money belongs right here in the middle of our time together, integrated into every other way that we engage with what matters most. And it is why in this series where we're talking about what is most essential in life, we had to spend this service, this time, talking about money very directly because we don't talk about money 
we don't talk about money, but that does not change the way that, that it is connected to that, which is most essential in our lives. And actually not talking about money just inhibits us from using money as a tool to tend to that which is most essential. We need this community, this place where we are tending to those most essential things to be a place where we heal that shame. I mean, we need, to, we need it to be a place where we heal all our shame, including our shame about money. So that instead of being an obstacle to what is most essential in life, a stand-in for what is most essential. Money can lead us to a deeper connection with the truer, more beautiful world that we long for. This idea, by the way, is basically the opposite of what I learned about money growing up. In my family, money was not a source of healing. It was a source of confusion. And definitely it was a source of shame. Money is a thing you always need more of, I was taught, more than you have. Growing up, I learned kind of mode of magical thinking. Like if you think you need something, there, there will somehow be money to pay for it, even though repeatedly we've reaped the consequences of that not being true. I learned that the good people planned with what they would do with their money in advance. And then did that. And I also learned that we were not in that way, good people. I learned that we, our family would likely never have enough money for vacation or for my parents to retire, but we always somehow had enough money to go out to dinner on Saturday night after church. I learned that banks can be very kind while telling you the most devastating news and that you can work endlessly your whole life and still end up bankrupt. I also learned that how much money someone has actually has nothing to do with who they are or how much goodness they deserve. We all have our stories about money. We all have the ways that we were taught implicitly and explicitly to understand what money means and how it works. Even if we believe entirely otherwise now, these stories we were taught live in us individually and collectively and influence us in all sorts of ways because, because we were taught not to talk about it. We were taught to keep these stories in silence, which means that the first step in healing, healing the shame, healing the ways that money is an obstacle to what is essential rather than a tool to help us access what is essential. The first step in he healing is before we can even talk to each other about money, let alone use that money as a source of healing, the first step is to be honest with ourselves, to tell ourselves, to surface those stories we have that we carry about money with compassion and radical acceptance we must bring to light all the ways that we have learned to hide this 
this essential part of our lives. We must practice breaking the silence and begin to speak. In our speaking, we begin to heal. In speaking, we begin to heal. Now, our stories of money come from so many different sources. They're instilled in childhood. They're formed by, they're a part of each of our formative experiences in life. I pulled some members of our community about some of the stories that they heard when they were growing up. The majority of people said that they didn't talk about money, that that was pretty much very true in their households. And that not talking about money also led the majority of them to feel that a sense of not having enough money, irrespective of the class background that they came from. Because in our capitalist society, so many of us have this scarcity experience in which we feel like we don't have enough money. So I'm going to invite you into just a reflective moment. I'm going to pose some questions about your story about money. And I invite you without shame or guilt just to start to think about your answers, right? In speaking about it, we begin to heal because we unearth it and allow it to be seen. And when we can see it, well, we have the opportunity to choose if it's the story that we want to play out in the next chapter of our lives. What are your stories about money? When you think back, what are the earliest experiences with money that you remember? And what messages did you take from these? Were you taught about money explicitly, directly, or implicitly? Taught because it was something that wasn't spoken about. When you looked around your world, who did you learn handles the decisions about money? And who was impacted by those decisions? And did they have any say? As you came to notice the world around you in those formative years, did you receive a story about people that deserved more money and others that deserved less? Did you receive a story about how important money is and why it was important? Was it good? Was money seen as good or bad or maybe just neutral? As you moved through the course of your life, how has your feelings about money shifted, changed? What defining moments unearthed a different way of being? or confirmed assumptions that you had from the very beginning. 
whatever story arises, whatever memories, whatever images, let them arise without judgment. Our work here is simply to notice. Because in noticing, we can begin to heal. I'm going to turn it back over to Gretchen to invite us to consider the next chapter in our story about money. The time of the pandemic has been challenging for so many of us, often in really serious and significant ways, and also in some small yet persistently annoying ways. I have a confession that's more in the latter category to share with you, which is that about halfway through the pandemic, my partner and I felt completely done with making meals. After long days of Zoom meetings and online school negotiations with our middle schooler and high schooler, we were just exhausted and tired of being in charge. So in those days, we started a habit that took us until about the summer of 2021 to really come out of. The habit goes like this. We ignore the meals that we'd carefully planned for the week and the ingredients sitting in our fridge. And instead, we type doordash.com or when we get really fancy, noconosh.com into our web browser. And then we pick whatever restaurant sounds good and they deliver to us. Dinners turned into lunch, which sometimes when we were lucky, uh, turned into Saturday donuts. This habit was a way of cleaning spontaneity in the dullness of pandemic times. And it was also a way that we ended up spending money without really even thinking about it. Until a few months in, when we started to add it all up and we were pretty shocked and also pretty embarrassed. Spending money can often happen like this, though we spend it by accident or by habit, especially if we have just a little more than we need to get by to get the basics of life. It can be easy to end up spending mindlessly in ways that don't at all fit our actual priorities and personal values, that sense of what is essential. What do you spend your money on? Where is it by accident and where is it on purpose? Do you have a version of my DoorDash confession? Or maybe you have the opposite. Maybe you have held on to money in ways that have, that have kept you from spending it on your values. We've been quoting Annie Dillard a lot in this series who says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. But just as true is that how we spend our money is how we spend our lives. The small and the big choices we make in our spending reflects our actual priorities. And so when you think about how you spend your money, is that what you believe matters most? Not just for yourself, but for life as a whole. I mean, we tend to think about our money choices very individually, but our money, our money choices, like all of our choices, have consequences big and small for the whole interdependent web. So how is your money 
and how you use it a reflection of your sense of how life should be. The world that you believe is most essential. Do you feel the shame starting to creep in? Maybe take a good deep breath. Try to release that. Try to heal that as we surface these truths with compassion. Instead, turn to what, just what, what, what does it feel like to imagine spending your money with, with this frame in mind? Where and how would you spend it differently? And then what gets in the way of that? What, and then what helps? Just like we ask about any other part of our lives, we can ask the same question about how we spend our money. Spending in ways that connect with your deepest priorities is not easy, of course, in our culture that idealizes instant gratification and self-interest. Because inevitably what it leads us to is that we will spend our money in ways that are not necessarily benefiting us directly. And instead in ways that take longer to bear fruit or that get subsumed in a much larger or longer term project. Kind of like the projects that we take up as a church community here at Foothills. Despite the weekly ritual of my childhood, I never had any sense that what we, the money that we collected in those offering baskets, of what that money actually went, what it was used for. I mean, whether or not it had anything to do with, with, with funding the church and its activities, let alone whether it paid the salaries of the priests. I mean, I don't even think I realized priests got paid, which I mean, they barely do. As I got older, I started to hear that the Catholic Church had a lot of money, as evidenced by their lavish buildings and all the various paraphernalia of Catholicism, and by the fact that they supported all those languishing churches all across the world, regardless of the number of coins that children threw into the offering basket. Now, although not everyone grew up Catholic, a lot of us today have a sense that this is how money in church works. A large, centralized, and powerful institution collects a lot of money to spend somewhat irresponsibly and superficially for big cathedrals and ceremonies, or worse, to cover up misbehavior or misconduct happening amongst its clergy. Alternatively, you might also, when you're thinking about money in church, you might instead think about televangelists or megachurch pastors who get vulnerable people to send them all their money because it's what God wants, only to secretly be funding their lavish lifestyles or to cover up for some other scandal. Neither of these images exactly indicate that the local church would be a place where money could be healing or drive us towards that more essential world. They're just the opposite. Money in church instead becomes another obstacle to the essential, a place where we don't heal our stories of shame. We just learn new versions now wrapped up in all the complications of church and the kind of shame that church inspires. As you might have guessed and hopefully experienced, this is not how money works here in our church community. 
first of all, everything that we do here is supported by our local community. There's no big top-down institution sending us money to keep our staff paid or to fund our food bank or immigration advocacy or to make sure that the building is kept clean for the families who've been who've stayed there all last year. These are just a few of the examples. We have a budget that the congregation, those who are official members, votes on each year, and that the bud and that budget represents all of our intended spending for the year. This year, this right now, we will be presenting the budget to the congregation in just a few weeks, the middle of November. And then members will vote on that budget at our annual meeting on December 5th. We consider this budget in the same way that we all individually have the opportunity to think about our personal spending. That is, it is, can be a reflection of what we understand to be the essential parts of life and life, our essential life together. And by we, through all of this, I literally mean all of us, because we, all of us, including all of you, are the church. There's no them in our church. There's just us. Longtime church member Dick Culler used to talk about what he called the color covenant. He said, it was the promise we make to each other to talk about money. Because money is essential to our individual lives and to our collective lives. And our individual choices about money have, have collective consequences. And so a part of our covenant, Dick would say, is our promise to keep talking about money and to ask each other about it and to practice breaking the silence. Even though it's awkward, even though it makes us squirm, even though we will not do it perfectly, even though I know you would probably rather be talking about literally anything else. But because we promise that we will tend to the most essential things in life together, we also have to promise that we will keep trying, trying to heal the shame so that money can be a tool to serve the vision of what matters most. That vision of our interbeing that is not no self or we're not all self, but rather that, that vision of our mutuality and potentiality, because that is what we are about here. It is our collective attempt to bring into being that world we long to see, that essential world. Remembering that, as I said last week, Every attempt at this effort is an approximation that will fall short. And so it is the trying that matters. Maybe most of all, what I appreciate about thinking of all of this as part of our covenant is that it reminds us that we will need each other's help to heal. We'll need each other's help if money is going to be a source of healing. We need each other's help to confess without shame or guilt all the ways that we are caught in our old stories and all the ways where we are spending our money thoughtlessly or where we are hoarding it without shame, without guilt. We need each other's help to recognize the ways our relationship to money has become disconnected from our sense of what is essential. 
and we need each other's help to release all the old stories and make new ones. New stories that are grounded first in gratitude for the gifts that we have received so that we, we can pass these gifts on for the common good and for the future. So that what matters most, what matters most of all, the most essential, that is this vision of courageous love, life, abundant, beloved community, that this can keep growing and thriving far beyond what any of us can do on our own. May it be so. And amen. During this pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about essential workers. All of the people who've had to go to work on the front lines, risking exposure for themselves and their families. There was a lot of gratitude that was offered up. And yet, if we look across the labor landscape, what we see right now is that while these jobs are essential, we have not treated the workers as if they are essential. We see strike actions at major airports, workers demanding better wages, demanding to be protected against the virus. While their corporate head offices make billions, they don't struggle to survive. And so I offer this prayer for all of us. Spirit of life and love, help us to escape old stories. Stories that tell us that there isn't enough and that we must only protect our own. Teach us to live from that new story, that story of courage and love that knows our interconnection, our interdependence, our interbeing is foundational to who we are, that it is essential that all of us truly need all of us to survive every time we transact, every time we exchange money for service, money for product. Help us to think thoughtfully about that interchange, to bring a humanness, a desire for the common good to flourish from that transaction so that we may practice in each moment, releasing those old stories and finding in each other and in our lives a gratitude, an investment in the common good, in a future that is beloved, investing in what matters most. Thanks for listening to the Deeper Podcast. I've loved hearing all of the feedback about our episodes. You know, over the past few weeks, I've been watching the trends of how many people are listening to the Deeper Podcast each week. And the numbers are just going up. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening, for investing your precious time in going on this journey with us. We love hearing from you. You can reach out to us at deeperpod, D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsu.org. I want to thank everyone who financially supports the work of Foothills. We get to take our message of courage and love and bring it into the digital world because of your financial support. From recurring donations to Sunday offering, every one of those dollars goes to support our mission. And so if you're not already supporting work, I invite you to think about it. You can go to foothillsuu.org slash give to find a way. If you think of what we're doing as essential, as the work we're doing together, investing in making the world a place for more love, then I invite you to find a way to do it with us. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be focusing on remembering remembering as an essential practice, remembering those 
who have died. As the seasons turn and we move into the All Souls Halloween space where stories tell of the veil between this world and the next becoming thin, we're going to explore how remembering our death is essential to life. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to leave you with this musical offering from our own Christopher Lamb and James Mitchell. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a house. I wouldn't buy you a house. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you furniture for your house. Maybe a nice Chesterfield or an Ottoman. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a cake car, a nice reliant automobile. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. If I had a million dollars, I'd build a tree fort in our yard. If I had a million dollars, you could help, it wouldn't be that hard. If I had a million dollars, maybe you could put a tiny fridge in there somewhere. You know, we could just go up and hang out and, like, open the fridge and there'd be foods laid out for us. Yeah, with, like, little pre-wrapped sausages and things. They have pre-wrapped sausages, but they don't have pre-wrapped bacon. Uh, can you blame them? Yeah. You could get some pre-wrapped plant-based sausages, too. Mm, that's a good call. Mm. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a fur coat, but not a real fur coat. That's cruel. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you an exotic pet, yep, like a llama or an emu. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you John Merrick's remains, all crazy elephant bones. And if I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to walk to the store. If I had a million dollars, we'd take a limousine cause it costs more. And if I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to eat craft dinner. But we would eat craft dinner. Oh, of course we would. We'd just eat more. And buy really expensive ketchups with it. Oh, that's right. All the fanciest ketchups. <laughs> Dijon ketchup. Oh. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a green dress, but not a real green dress. That's cruel. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars. I'd buy you some art, a Picasso or a Garfunkel. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a monkey. Haven't you always wanted a monkey? And if I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love.